We appreciate so very much those of you that made the effort to be with us. And as always is the case, I do consider it an honor to speak concerning the Word of God, and that is the case today. My hope and my prayer is, as I've mentioned in lessons past, on this series of the seven I Am statements that Jesus made in the Gospel according to John, my hope and my prayer is that you will leave this series with a thought in your mind and a greater appreciation for Jesus than maybe that you've had in the past. Jesus said these great, remarkable things so long ago, and they're so filled with meaning and so filled with meat. When we already talked about when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Then he said, I'm the light of the world. Then he said, I'm the door or the gate. Then he said, I am the good shepherd. And now the fifth one of those seven I am statements, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Our text is found in John chapter 11 and beginning there in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? This is a very thrilling chapter. It's a great story when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And may I just say, this miracle was strategic in two ways. Number one, it was strategic in the time that Jesus performed it. And number two, it was strategic in the place that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Amazingly, this is the last public miracle that Jesus performs. Now, I said that we would get to the strategic part, and here is what I mean by that. The miracle happens just before the Passover. And there were many people that were traveling, for example, along that rough and rocky road on that Jericho road from Jericho to Jerusalem. This miracle happens and Jesus raises this man from the dead in a place called Bethany. And Bethany was about two miles east of Jerusalem. So picture it like this. It's Passover time, and you've got all these pilgrims, as the scholar says, and they're going along to Jerusalem. The point is this. There's no way to doubt that Jesus actually raises him from the dead, and everybody that passed by would have known the story inside and out. And there was no denying it. Amazing strategic time and place. I think it also strengthened the faith of the disciples. Do you remember when Jesus said to his disciples over and over again, he said, I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. You know, I don't understand why they didn't understand that. I don't really get that. There was one occasion, for example, when Jesus says, I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to raise again. And one of them said, ask him what he means by that. Because they didn't get it. Just maybe this particular miracle was designed in the very presence of his disciples to increase their faith, showing the possibility of such a resurrection because it was an actual picture of what would happen with Jesus. Lazarus was dead, and four days later he rose again. Jesus was dead, and three days later he rose again. All right. In addition to all this, this is certainly a monumental widespread evidence of his deity. Jesus says this. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, <clears throat> excuse me, 
Though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he said this, very important. He said, do you believe this? Believing that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life was aided by this great miracle. And I think that's the reason there's so much detail that's given here. The focus is to demonstrate that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he's also the Christ that came to save the world. He is the son of God. And believing in him brings everlasting joy in heaven. And isn't that the point of the gospel of John? In John chapter 20 beginning there in verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You know, Jesus is our Lord and our Savior right now. We long for the second coming of Jesus. But when Jesus comes back, he won't be the Savior anymore. He will be the judge, number one. And guess what? He'll also be the one to raise the dead. Right now, he's the Savior. That's why we have to take advantage of what the gospel tells us to do in obedience to it so we can go to heaven. That's why we do it in this life. He's the Savior now. One day, though, he'll be the judge. And secondly, he will be the one to raise the dead. And why? Because he is the resurrection and the life. And, you know, Jesus did not say, I do this. He says, I am this. Remember, when Jesus says, I am, in all these instances, he is saying, I am deity. He's saying, I am God. You know, there's many things that are attributed to God. God is love. God is peace. God is many other things. They are attributes of his character. They are part of him. Same with Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection and he is the life. You know, there were a couple other occasions where Jesus raised somebody from the dead. This miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus is so much more significant and amazing. And I don't think anything in the Bible is an accident. I really don't. There's no denying the resurrection of Lazarus, but let's back up. You remember that time when Jesus raised the daughter of a man by the name of Jairus or Jairus, however you want to pronounce that? And that man had a daughter and she died. And Jesus appears on the scene shortly after she's dead. Now, Jairus was the official from the local synagogue. And Jesus raises this young girl from the dead. Now, there's no way back then, they didn't have any way to tell clinically if somebody was dead. There was nothing. There wasn't an EEG. There wasn't an EKG. They had no test to determine the heart function and the brain function. So it's quite possible when somebody died and was raised from the dead by Jesus, somebody might have said, no, he didn't raise him from the dead. It was just some kind of a swoon. And you know what that means? A swoon is to faint because of extreme stress or emotion. And did you know this, that people actually believe that people would do that? And, and uh, many people that were raised from the dead in the Bible, people would try to explain it away for that. And, and the greatest one of all 
When Jesus rose from the dead, over the history of time, there have been seven things, seven theories that man has come up with to try to say Jesus was not resurrected from the dead. I think it's easier to read it. He died. On the third day, he rose from the dead. That's good enough for me. But you know one of those theories, one of those seven theories, it was called the swoon theory. And they said this. Jesus never was resurrected from the dead because Jesus wasn't dead at all. He just was under some kind of swoon. What else? There was another time, too. Remember the widow that had the son? And the funeral procession was moving along. And Jesus stops the procession. And he raises the young man from the dead. Somebody might have said, well, you know what? No, he was just resuscitated from a temporary condition. He didn't die. All that being said, that's now behind us. Let's talk about Lazarus. That is absolutely impossible when we talk about Lazarus because Lazarus had been dead for four days. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Actually, we skipped one. Okay, we skipped the passage. John chapter 11, verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. I did a little research this week of what happens to an unembalmed body in 72 hours. I don't mean to be morbid, but this is so important to understand the setting and understand what Jesus did in the magnet and how, he, uh, how great it was. In 72 hours, this is what happens to the body. I say unembalmed because the Jews did not embalm bodies. They would actually take the body and they would wrap the body and they would take those fragrant spices and they would wrap the body up in those spices and all that would do, it didn't slow down decomposition, it just took the smell away a little bit. This is, by the way, what happens in 72 hours, so we're going to say 96 hours is when Jesus comes on the scene. The heart has stopped beating. The body's cells are then deprived of oxygen, and they begin to die. Blood drains from throughout the circulatory system and pools in the lower places. Muscles begin to stiffen in what is known commonly by the Latin rigor mortis that sets in after three hours. By 24 hours, the body has lost all of its heat. The muscles then lose their rigor in 36 hours, and by 72 hours, rigor mortis has vanished. All stiffness is gone, and the body is soft. As cells begin to die, bacteria goes to work. The bacteria in the body of a dead person begin to attack, breaking the cells down. The decomposing tissue takes on a horrific look and smell and emits green liquids by the 72nd hour. The tissue releases hydrogen sulfide and methane as well as other gases and obviously a horrible smell is emitted. I'm not trying to be gross. I'm just trying to set the tone of the picture because guess what? Meet Lazarus. He'd been in the grave for four days. This is what the condition of his body would have been and that's why in verse 39, you remember? We're going to get to this at the end. But in verse 39, when Jesus says, take away the stone, when he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, remember what Martha said? Oh, she says, 
But it's been four days, and he, there is a, the, the New King James says, there is a stench. The King James says, he already stinketh. You know why? Because this process had happened in his unembalmed body. Now, people lived with death. Let me talk about funerals today. I got, I got to thinking about this. What are the funerals like today? Something like this. When somebody passes away, their body is embalmed and they put on their Sunday best and they're the guest of honor. And we all come together and we mourn their passing. We celebrate their life. We say things about them. And a funeral service perhaps is 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. Then we kind of pack on up and we get a caravan and we go to the cemetery. And we stand there and we say a couple things. And if it's like me, I talk about the resurrection. This is not the end. Have a prayer. And then we go to usually somebody's house and we have a little meal. And we visit a while and then everybody goes away. And the family's left. That's not the way they had funerals back then. Let me suggest some things to you about that historically. This is what they were like. When somebody died, everybody that knew them poured into their life. There were neighbors. There were family members. There were friends. Even people, I read, that they didn't even know. Strangers would pour into their home. They would get the group of people, and they would walk toward the place that they would bury that person. You know, there's so many people that came into their life. Maybe they were a very prominent family here. They came to console them. That's what they did. And they came to comfort them. In fact, in John chapter 11 and verse 19, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. What they did was this. When somebody died, they buried them immediately. And there would be a procession from the house that I just told you everybody pour into their, into their life, into their house. They'd get to the place where they would bury the person. And you know, burial back then was a little bit different. Many times they were buried in caves. In fact, I read historically that many people in the ancient world around the Mediterranean were buried in caves. There would be an open cave and inside there would be like a shelf. And they would take that body that they had wrapped up with those fragrant spices and place the body on the shelf. That's what would have happened. Then the stone was there so no uh, animal could come in and do something to the body. And they'd be protected there. And then the entire procession would go back to the house. I read they never ate a thing. Until the body was buried. They didn't want any form of levity. No joy. No, no happiness at all. They didn't want any form of normalcy at all. While they went through this process. The funeral process took seven days. That was the initial part. Finally they would serve a meal after they buried the body. And the meal would be of bread Hard-boiled eggs and lentils. And this would be things that they would have. And some people would bring food to sustain them. All those mourners that would be there for seven days. And while they mourned, they wailed out loud. By the way, when I kick off, don't do this. They wailed loud, audible sounds. It was, I read this, it was led by the women, and the sounds would be like piercing screams 
they would hire professional mourners too. And the professional mourners would come into their midst and they would stay for those seven days. They would lead the people in wailing and mourning. And they did that because they felt like that was comforting to the family. After seven days, the intense wailing would subside, but then the funeral went on for another 30 days. And 30 days of mourning would bring in eulogies and remembrances and words of comfort and all that. All that happens when somebody died. But in verses 20 and 21, now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house, and she says, and says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. All right. No doubt that she believed in the healing power of Jesus. She knew that Jesus healed strangers. Here's the point, though. Don't you kind of see what she's saying is? I know that you've healed strangers, and if you would have been here, certainly you would have healed Lazarus because you loved him so. In fact, in verse 3, that's exactly what they said of Jesus, the one who you love. So this remark of Martha shows her faith in Jesus and the feeling of friendship that was based upon it. In verse 22, But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. You know, nothing shook her faith when Lazarus died. But she recognized something very significant, and I think we all need to get this. Things are together when it comes to Jesus and God. They go together. She knew this. First she said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then she says, but I know this. If it's God's will... He'll give you anything that you ask. The joint wills of Jesus Christ and God, they go together. And Jesus says this. He said, your brother will rise again. You know, this statement was so indefinite, it didn't satisfy the sorrowing sister. But Jesus took the plan of introducing a very important subject. Jesus, Martha says this back to Jesus. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. How did she know that? Before I notice the passage with you, do you remember Luke chapter 10? You remember when Jesus came over to Mary and Martha's house? Very familiar story. Martha's doing the serving. You know, some people are really big servers. They're acts of service people. And they really demonstrate that. And that's how they feel. That's how they demonstrate their love and their service is by waiting on others and doing such things like that. We call that acts of service. So picture this. They're in the house. And guess what? Very important guest. His name is Jesus. And you got Mary and Martha there. What's Martha doing? She's working herself to death back and forth, serving. And she looks over there, and there's Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she's disgusted. And she says to Jesus, does it mean nothing to you? Is it okay with you that she's doing nothing to help me serve? And Jesus says, get this, Martha, Martha. You know, it's one thing when somebody says your name. It's another thing when they say your name twice. Usually, as a kid, when they say your full name, you're usually in trouble. I remember my mother used to say, Frank Brancato. I knew I was in trouble when they say your whole name. He says, Martha, Martha, 
You are troubled and worried about so many things. So many things are troubling you. But Mary understands there's one thing that's important. It's the good thing. She has chosen the good thing, listening to Jesus, listening to what Jesus has to say, being blessed in that occasion. And he said, and that will not be taken from her. That's the good thing. All right. This is Mary and Martha. They are sisters. So how would they have known? Well, as they sat and listened to Jesus, their dear friend, Jesus said this in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those that have done good into the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation or condemnation. Our Lord says to Martha, she says, I know he will rise in the last day. And then Jesus says this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? You know the I am there. It's also referred to as a tetragrammaton. You know, the transliteration that comes up with Yahweh and so forth. It's names for God. This is also a name for God. Is I am, a tetragrammaton. I am. He's saying, I am, that's a name for God. I am the resurrection and I am the life. The fifth of the seven I am statements. I am the source of life. I am the embodiment of life. And Jesus says, I am life. By the way, this one's coming up. We're going to have two left after this morning. One of, the, one of those is this one when Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. And he says, I am the life. Not in the future, but in the present. I am. In John chapter 11, again in verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now. Here's the question. Jesus says you have to believe. I have to really make a point about this. Please get this. And I'm going to ask you a question. Jesus said you had to believe. She says, I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that. But the question is, what does it mean to believe? If I would ask you all this question, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God that came into the world to save the sins of man? I would imagine everybody here would say yes. Do you believe? Yeah, I believe that. But what's it mean to believe? Believing is obeying. Did you see that? Believing is obeying. Obeying what? Obeying the Lord. How do I obey the Lord? By obeying the gospel and living an obedient life. We're going to get to this at the end. But let me just say this. There's two words that people hate today. These are two bad words. Here they are. Submission and obedience. Everybody wants to be their own person. Nobody wants to submit. And nobody wants to obey. But if you ever stop to consider, that is the entirety of the Christian life. It is all about submission to the Lord. It's all about obedience to the Lord. We'll talk about that a little later. All right. 
In John chapter 11, we go back to our narrative. And I'm going to put several verses in one narrative. Then we're going to get into some pretty neat stuff in verse 33. But here we go. In John chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary arose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In verse 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews that are with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Have you ever stopped to consider what all that meant? Years ago, in glancing at these passages, you know what I, th I thought? I thought Jesus was looking over there and seeing Mary and Martha weeping and then also seeing the Jews weeping. And he was thinking to himself, oh, this is wonderful. And he was grown and he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. Let's first look at this word weeping. What does that mean? He saw the Jews weeping. The word weeping means to mourn, weep aloud, lament. It's the idea of outward demonstrations, audible demonstrations, the loudness of the wailing. He sees it all. And the Bible says he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. The word groan means to be angry, to be moved with indignation. Why would Jesus be angry at such a thing? You've heard me say this, but i got to add some more. You've heard me say this before. I think, number one, it was because of the hypocrisy of the professional mourners. They're going through the motions they're putting on this outward show. He groaned in, in himself. The word means to be angry, to be moved with indignation. But I think there's more. Perhaps it's over how sin has brought death in the world. Sin has brought death into the world. Chris and I have a mutual business friend. I won't say his name. But he had cancer in his face. He had been treated for a while and decided, I'm not going to allow them to treat me anymore. And it's only a matter of time, he'll be dead. And I was talking to a handyman that works for him the other day. And he said, you know, I get really down. I go to talk to him every day. And all he says is, when he first sees me, I'm one day closer to the hole. You know, I got kind of sad at first. And then I thought, wait a minute. That's all of us. If Jesus doesn't come back today, we are one day closer to the hole. Do you know why we're one day closer to the hole? Because that hole exists for one reason. Because sin was brought into the world. Maybe Jesus, being our sympathetic high priest, maybe Jesus overlooking all that's going on, the hypocrisy of it all. He's groaning in his spirit. And then also how futile it is to have sin in your life and how sin brought death. And people are going to mourn and weep and cry and be in such pain when their loved ones die. It's going to happen to all of us. Maybe this too. Maybe this too. 
Maybe he's thinking, I got all these witnesses here and I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And some people are still going to reject me. Maybe he's thinking about that too. Have you ever stopped to consider that maybe Jesus says to himself, what more could I do? What more could I do? Every time somebody rejects Jesus, picture Jesus saying, what more could I do? I've died for you. What more could I do? And yet, people reject him. People rejected him in this occasion too. All this is happening. Yet he restrained from expressing his feelings. The Bible just says he merely groaned in his spirit. Now, I think this is beautiful. I really do. You know, we, we know passages and stuff like this where the Bible says he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Nobody understands what you're going through more than Jesus. He gets it. But you know what else Jesus did? He did something else. Now, we know that he willfully and willingly went to the cross. We know that. His life was not taken. His life he freely gave. We get all that. But notice, not only that, our sympathetic high priest let himself feel everything. Incidentally, you know the Greeks, they had idolatrous gods, right? Plural. And they don't, they don't exist. They just believe they did. Notice something I read. The Greeks described their gods by one word. It's the word apatheia. We transliterate that into the English word apathetic. You know why? Because they believed all those pagan gods, that those gods had no pain, had no emotion, and no ability to care. What a terrible God that would be. But Jesus allowed himself to feel everything. John chapter 11 and verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And then the shortest verse in all the Bible. Jesus wept. You know what's amazing about this word wept? It's different from the word weeping we noticed before. It's not audible, loud sounds. It actually is this. It means to weep or shed silent tears. It means a sudden outburst in open tears. Have you ever cried so hard? You know, we call that ugly crying. When your face gets distorted and you can't hold it in and the tears come and you're so heartbroken and maybe you're hugging a family member and you're both just sobbing with silent tears. That's this word. Jesus is standing there at the grave. He said, where have you led him? And Jesus wept. All of a sudden, he's overcome. He's overtaken by emotion and he's pouring it out. And he goes into a sobbing time of silent tears. This is the man of sorrows, folks, that was acquainted with grief, as Isaiah said. They're not sentimental tears. They're not professional tears. They're not prolonged mourner tears. This is literally a shocking outburst of our sympathetic high priest. And you know what the Jews said about that? What they said about that is they said, oh, how much he loved him. Oh, they missed the point. 
Because in verse 3 it says, when word got to Jesus, the one that you love is sick, right? So yeah, he did love him. And yeah, that is a true statement, but that's not what all was going on. They just looked at the Jesus pouring out those tears and said, oh, how he loved him. They missed the point. They didn't know that what led to the outburst was far more than his affection for Lazarus. Truly, it was all the reality of sin and death and unbelief. And there he stands at the edge of the tomb sobbing. And what, what's next is incredible. Jesus says, take away the stone. I've tried to picture this in my mind's eye. I read some scholars that said that the, ma- the crowd must have been massive. When Jesus says, take away the stone, no doubt they're all looking at the opening of that grave. And Jesus begins to pray to his father. And he says, Father, I thank you that you hear me now. But then he says, I know you always hear me. But I'm saying this for their benefit that they might believe that you have sent me. When he says, take away the stone, that's when Martha kicked in and says, oh. But Lord, he already stinks. It's been four days. And Jesus says to Martha, says, didn't I tell you, Martha, that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? When they took away the stone, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and he says, Lazarus, come forth. That is one name, by the way, and one verb. In the original language, one name, one verb. No fanfare, no angels coming down. He just says those two things. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the grave, bound by grave's clothes, and Jesus says, loose him and let him go. Remember when I said all that happened in 72 hours to the body? In two things that Jesus said in saying the name of Lazarus and the verb to to come forth, everything was reversed. He doesn't stink anymore. He came out of that grave like he never was there. So many things about this story. I would think that if I was there, I would think that I would believe in Jesus and I would follow Jesus and I would accept Jesus and I would do that. I would think that's what I would do. It's interesting how they reacted. When Jesus made all of the seven I am statements, he was giving a spiritual reality and then he illustrated it with a phys- in a physical way. He said, I'm the resurrection. Oh, and by the way, here's a resurrection to prove it. On another occasion, he said, I'm the bread of life and then he created a meal to prove it. On another occasion, he said, I'm the light of the world and then he healed blind eyes to prove it. Here he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he proves it by his resurrection power that was on display in raising Lazarus from the dead. All right. Jesus told Martha, to have everlasting life, you have to believe. And I said this. I said this. I said to believe is to obey. How does one obey the gospel? In Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, you have to hear the word of God. You've done that today. We've heard the word of God. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what produces faith in us is hearing the word of God. It's the word of God. 
then we must make a choice. In Mark 16, 16, Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And remember, belief of the Bible always brings with it the force to obey. So if I say I believe, it means I will obey what the Lord has told me to do. I hear the word of God. It produces faith. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I'm willing to do whatever he asks me to do. And what does he ask me to do? He says i got to repent. Luke 13 and 3. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What does that mean? i just got to change my life. I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to stop traveling in the way that I've been going, and I'm going to change my life and live for Jesus. What else? Matthew 10, 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. And that confession simply is, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. After taking these steps, a person is a fit candidate to go down where the point of salvation is, and that is to be baptized. In 1 Peter chapter 3, 21, the like figure wherein even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian and you've never taken these steps, we can assist you in that today. We would love to assist you in that today. But remember this. Everybody has to make the choice. What's amazing to me is when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it said many of those Jews believed. And some wanted to kill him. Everybody's got to make a choice. Do you want Jesus in your life? Do you want to be saved? We have to obey the gospel and obey the Lord for our life. That's what the word of God says. If you're not a Christian, please become one today by following these steps. Maybe you've taken these steps. Maybe you've drifted away. Maybe there are things in your life that aren't as they should be. Let's pray together. We'll pray with you and for you, and God will forgive. There'll be one of either class. Come forward while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.